You are listening to the Magic Drop Podcast. I'm your host, Isabel Cornish, actor, author, and creator. Join me on this journey of growth, joy, and love. I'm here to bring you dope content to expand your mindset and uplift your energy. Why? Because it's your epic life. In today's episode, I'm collaborating with Yanis Blums. Yanis is a former junior Australian high jump champion. He's a professional firefighter and a personal trainer for IMG Australia and Chic Model Management in Sydney. Yanis has completed a major in psychology and neuroscience. He has a passion for research and learning and is soon to release an educational online coaching platform. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands we meet on today. I'd like to pay my respects to my elders past and present. Also, a quick shout out to ACAST for hosting this potty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Magic Drop podcast. I'm your host, Isabel Cornish, and today I have an epic episode planned for you. I'm here with Giannis. Giannis, do you want to say hi to the listeners and introduce yourself? Yeah. Hey, Izzy. Nice to um, catch up with you again. So my name is Giannis and I'm a personal trainer here in Sydney. I work for um, IMG Worldwide um, and for Chic Model Management. And I'm also a professional firefighter. And I guess my, uh, my journey into personal training um, has been going on now for probably 10 to 15 years. So quite some time. And in that time, I've done a lot of study, a lot of research. And uh, I absolutely, I guess, thrive off learning, um, have a real passion for that. And, uh, and that's really helped sort of pave my way in my career to, to where I am today and, and everything I know and how I can help people achieve their goals. I was reflecting on something similar to that this morning, actually. There's nothing better than a purpose-driven life. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And it's, it's also really good to look back on life and look at how all your little aims and purposes have now come together to create where you are today as well. It's all about the journey. Yeah. Mm. So guys, today we're going to be chatting about training for SAS Australia, building strength and progressive overload. So first of all, I thought I'd just give a quick rundown on what SAS is. SAS is an Australian TV show where a group of individuals or celebrities are pushed to their limits as they eat, sleep and train together through a series of physical and psychological tests from the real SAS selection process. So I was lucky enough to be one of the contestants in SAS Australia and it was an epic experience, um, which we'll dive into a little bit more of that in a second. But I just want to touch on the fact that Giannis was my trainer for this show and we had a few months to prepare. It was an epic adventure. How long did we actually have to prepare me for the show? Yeah, look, I think when you first approached me, it was about 12 weeks. But because of the distance factor, you were up in, um, in Byron on the Central Coast or something. And obviously, we couldn't come together probably for the first three to four weeks, I believe. So... I think I first gave you a, a strength program to do in the gym um, that you were attending. Uh, and then once you were able to come to Sydney, then we really got stuck to got, got into work and worked pretty hard and, and had a lot of fun. And um, it was, uh, it was fun for me. I don't know if it was as much fun for you, some of those training sessions. <laughs> it was so fun. Yeah. I think that sounds about right. I think it was a month, uh, 
training by distance and I was doing a lot of outside sessions at that point because mm. I didn't go to the gym that much. I was doing a few gym sessions and then I think it was eight weeks together in a gym in Sydney. Yeah. And I just want to have a quick question for you. Yeah. Why did you want to train me for SAS or why did you agree to train me just for that show? Sure. Um, well, I, I had watched the very first uh, SAS Australia. I loved it. So I was really, um, it, I have a bit of a military background. I, um, I got a scholarship to the Air Force to be a pilot. Um, I'd done air cadets all throughout my teenage years at school in, in terms of coming together to become a pilot. And um, so I'd done a lot of like bivouacs and, and, and there was a lot of my sisters in the military. So it really resonated with me, the whole SAS journey. And I have a lot of military friends as well. Um, and then with you, I, I knew of you, obviously, uh, I'd seen you on Instagram. I saw your, um, I love the way you went about life. I love the way you were very, um, inspirational to, to young women, um, health and fitness were a major part of your life. So I knew that would sort of be quite well aligned there. Um, and then I thought what a great challenge as a trainer to have somebody come on board and do this sort of two to three month block of training. And it was just something different for me. Um, on a, on a whole new level, but something that I really wanted to dive deep into. And I, and I did, I, I researched a lot um, on specificity of training on the SAS program itself for entry. I spoke to my military mates. Um, yeah. And then I just knew that a lot of that stuff that we were going to do, I was going to do with you as well, like the pack marches and stuff and that I do those anyway. And that really excited me to have someone next to me to, to sort of push along and, and, uh, See if I can make you slip up a few times. <laughs> yeah, it was so fun. And I just want to quickly touch on why I wanted to be a part of SAS. So it was to challenge myself, to face my fears and to find mindset strategies to overcome them. I also wanted to show that women are as capable, if not more capable <laughs> than men. So a cheeky little add in there, but essentially to learn and grow mentally and physically. So this was an opportunity for me to put myself into something unknown to see how I would respond and then to also be challenged and to be able to highlight the growth from those challenges. Yeah, awesome. I love that about challenging yourself and to see how you respond to things that are tough and require a, a lot of resilience. I think it's hard to to kind of mimic that in, in life and um, SAS or something I did was a, was a hike, a solo hike in Norway, which I did for the exact same purpose. And that was really just to challenge myself physically and mentally and say, hey, when things get tough, how am I going to respond? Um, and that, I, I guess, really helps you build some confidence and self-belief for when life does get tough, which it inevitably will. Um, so yeah, hats off to you for taking that journey. I'd love to do it. <laughs> <laughs> One day we'll go, both go on it again. This time I'm going injury-free. But also another thing that it's, I think it's important for me to share is there was a little bit of a belief that you come out of that show and you just feel like you kick life's ass. When actually for me personally, and I've heard stories from other people as well, it takes a while to integrate that experience, to be able to reflect on that spirit experience and to disconnect from the things that brought up 
shit, to be honest, like that bring up our shit or that challenge us or that trigger us. It can take a while to decompress, to reflect and to be able to highlight the growth mindset from that experience. So it's not just like you come out and you feel awesome. I actually felt terrible when I came out of SAS, not because I was tired, but because I was just, I needed time to reflect on that whole experience and something that's that intense. When it's just go, go, go 24 hours a day, you don't have time to think about, oh, how did that experience make me feel? So it took me a while to rewind. That makes a lot of sense. Like, and I guess that's different to the journey I, I was telling you about with the, the hike where every day I was feeling it, but I was only with myself. So I was reflecting the whole time going through it. But with you, I guess you, you, you were always under the pump. There was never a time to, to rest and lay back and have a think about what just happened. It's like, oh, you got to go again. Um, so it makes sense that you would have taken those weeks to then sort of, yeah, decompress it all and, and go through it and, reflect. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew what my weaknesses were going into that. And my weaknesses were all the little things. So I told myself I would work a hundred times harder to make sure that those little things didn't let me down. And those little things were like packing my cutlery away or making sure every part of my kit was squared away appropriately. So I would just, you know, my water bottle was full. So those little things from an ADHD brain don't come as easy for me. So Mm. I was always grinding. So any second that I had, I'm like, okay, easy. Let's go over everything 10 more times. And there were still so many moments when, or this one night I was, have to have my water bottle full and Yana's told me before this he's like always have your water bottle full yeah so I was on to that we <laughs> ran out in the middle of the night at 3 a.m they came in started smashing things in our accommodation we run out my water bottle's full and then they're like okay we want you to grab every single item from base and bring it out here and set it up exactly the same here outside as it is in your accommodation so then we spent maybe 40 minutes bringing all our gear out and it was heavy. There were the beds, there were the blankets, everything, the chests, the medical kit, the buckets, whatever was near the fireplace, all of that stuff. And on that trip, a little bit of uh, water started to spill out of my (laughs) drink bottle. Just like a couple of little sips just spilled out and we get back out there and we're standing, freezing cold, standing at the end of our beds which are now outside (laughs) and he goes open your water bottle and I was like oh shit I could feel the water just like trickling down my leg (laughs) and I opened it and I was like squeezing the edges of the water bottle to to make the lip go up yeah he looks in he's like number eight that's not good enough tip it over your head and I was like oh "Oh, no my gosh but the thing I tried so hard And that was like things like that. It was just like I was working above and beyond and then things like that would happen. And I'm just like, oh, they got me there. And and they always will, right? And for me as a viewer, there was so much more I wanted to see, particularly of of your journey. Like I I just, because I was your coach, so I just wanted to see everything. But it's an hour show, you know, of of each day or a couple of days. And so that was the hard part for me because I just, I just, I guess I was so invested in you. And as a coach, you want to be on the sideline, just cheering you yeah. on, you know, come on. Yeah. Um, but it's really up to the editing process and stuff, what you see then, isn't it? So they probably showed 30% of what we did, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. There was so much else that went on. So I just want to share my actual goals for SAS. Mm-hmm. So my goals in terms of um, my fitness were to build strength, to build a greater endurance than I already had. 
me to have enough muscle to be able to execute the grueling tasks. And as a woman, I never wanted my physical fitness or strength to let me down. And thanks to the training that we did, it definitely didn't. I mean, before I started training for SAS, I could probably smash out 20 push-ups on my toes. And one night we were out there, it was like day seven. So we're already exhausted. And they got me to do 130 push-ups on my toes. And I just had that moment. I'm like, wow. Yeah. I was like, I cannot believe that I just did that. I can. And- <laughs> <laughs> I watched you do a lot of things I couldn't believe you could do. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and as a trainer, how do you kind of, or how did you interpret my goals, but then also use what you know as an expert and as a trainer to come up with a training program that you believed was suitable yeah, for, the, um, for that kind of show? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, there's a number of factors. Obviously, strength was going to be the massive one that we needed to, to boost um, for the show. And so, and, and I guess we relied on the traditional strength training of like deadlifts, squats, all that kind of stuff. Although the squats, because of your hip, we had to manage that as well. Um, and then I looked at the specificity of the training, like, what is it you're going to be doing a lot of? Well, a lot of the pack marching, I knew you were going to be needing the endurance in your legs and the strength in your legs, plus the ability to endure just the heavy pack on your back all the time. So I knew that you can't replicate that, but other, other than just doing it yourself. So that's why we did the pack marches. Um, and then the, I think the hardest part of training you was getting you to accept that you had to rest and recover in order to get stronger from the training we were doing that was holding you back was definitely the hardest part of I I think of of training you because you just I mean you just thrived you love it obviously and and you wanted to keep going but it was just making you understand that uh, the rest protocol was just as important as the strength training itself Um, but yeah so we we did the traditional strength training um, we worked on the specificity of the SAS sort of stuff, which I'd had a look at the entry program through some military mates. Um, I had, um, so I looked at that and then we knew that like from watching the show that your overhead resilience and stamina was and strength needed to be right up there for all those nasty sort of drills they were going to give you holding sandbags and logs above your head. I knew that grip strength was going to be huge because we were going to have to carry um, or you were going to have to carry, um, you know, all the different, equipment um and then just your overall sort of size and strength as well so we had really we had that eight weeks to try and develop some mass and some strength um your your endurance because of your running ability previously i i backed that in already um it was really more working on the strength side of things um because i knew that was what was going to be um required and probably the weakest link for you there and I guess with the, mm. the hip issue there, we had to work around that and, and be really strategic in the way we managed your hip so we didn't aggravate it anymore, but actually made it better. Yeah, definitely. Because before SAS, I was running a lot and yeah, my uh, endurance and cardio was really good. I was going out on 25K trail runs and things like that. So I wasn't worried about my endurance. I knew that I had that base. And then I knew that if we implemented other training on top of that, my endurance wouldn't I wouldn't lose endurance. I'd probably gain it, but I'd have more muscle. Mm. So um, for anyone that doesn't know what a pack walk is, it's when you have like a big backpack, army backpack or any sort of big backpack full of heavy stuff. Yeah, equipment, whatever. Yeah. You can have weights in there. You can have dead balls, sandbags. Whatever you want. And you walk or run with that weight on your back. So we started off 
um, was probably like an hour pack walk and then we increased. Yeah, probably. I think an hour was the starting point. Yeah, we tried to increase it to two, around two, maybe even a little bit more. Um, definitely made sure there was hills involved. Um, and then we put in the other stuff like like, like those little sand what you call yourself? A, sand cutlet. <laughs> sand cutlet. Um, yeah, so we put in those, we put in the swims, the fully clothed swims and the sand crawls and stuff like that, that we knew you'd have to expect. And that was part of the mental strength training. I think that I was trying to um, sort of get you involved in as well um, because if you were to go into that on the SAS without having done any of that stuff, you that could really get to you if you weren't prepared and, and kind of used to it. But what I learned really quickly from you is that you were, you just frothed over all that stuff. <laughs> you loved it. You, you like yeah. you wouldn't say no to anything. Um, there was only a few times where you asked me to sort of pull back a little bit, but that was like because it was pretty extreme. And some of the stuff I watched you do in in the, I guess more of the endurance stamina with with the heavy loads, all those carries and different hill carries, the dead ball, the sandbag, the overhead carries that we did that session was just insane. I never trained anyone pushed anyone as hard as I pushed you in in the training and that was that that was the challenge because it's like eight weeks to 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 get there it was like you've got to as a coach you've got to push the person to their almost their absolute limit without breaking them and without injuring them and without um sort of overstraining where where you do get injured or sick um because then you've got in, when you've only got eight weeks, you don't have time to be injured or sick. You have to, uh, and that's where the rest and recovery was, was really important that I was trying to get to you to just build your strength because the strength doesn't come from the session. It comes from after the session in that rest recovery phase. Yeah, and during this period as well, I was pretty much just training, resting, training, mm. resting. Mm. I didn't have much else going on in my life for for a reason because I wanted to be able mm. to focus on the training and I wanted to be able to get my head in the game. I use comedy to <laughs> I use comedy to help me through any pain. So I'm always making jokes. And then sometimes when it's like when Giannis would put me through a really tough session, and it'd be maybe sometimes like nine or ten rounds, and I'd get to round three and I'm like, oh, I've got a long way to go. So then all of a sudden I just have this little click in my brain and I pretend that I was in like Mario Kart or something, and I'd just be like, you know, and I'd pretend that I was in like a video game and I would make the comedy of it. And you did, yeah. Honestly, that changed everything. If you can lighten things up and find ways by using I've got a very creative mind, but if you can step outside the box and find ways to use like your creativity or your play or fun to combat the difficult times then it makes it a lot easier and I also use that in the show so when my mind started to go in circles and my monkey mind started to come up especially when it was in those car rides so we'd be locked in a car for two to three hours no idea where we're going yeah wow scared yeah like okay what, what's going to happen next? When are we going to go back to base? We've only got 600 mils in our water bottle and how many hours does that have to get me through? Like I'm thirsty, I'm tired, I'm hungry. And it was just that time with you couldn't look out the window. You didn't have any distractions. You didn't really want to talk to anyone because you were all exhausted by that point. Mm. We talked a lot in the first day or two, then we were just like mute. <laughs> we were mute in the car. So your mind starts playing tricks on you. And if you let that mind play tricks on you, you're going to go down a rabbit hole and, you know, you could VW or yeah. you could, you could like 
leave the show and then regret it or whatever that is. So I also used that same comedy creativity to rewire my mindset in those situations. So when I'd find my monkey mind coming up, I'd just start to write a creative story. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so a narrative in my head and like plot a movie or plot a TV show and just get so far from where I was so that I just felt like I wasn't in that moment and that really helped me. Yeah, I guess you're distracting your imagination with your imagination because it's the mm. uncertainty that drives the anxiety as it does in life. And then you just you just told yourself your own story and that was out of that environment. And I guess that's why it helped. That's That was really good to, to be able to do that. Yeah, and then I also would like to touch on the – so we trained a lot. We would do – pack walks and pack marches and some pack running where I'd run with the weight on my back. Then we'd also train in the gym and the gym sessions would be, we did a lot of activation and warming up, which I'd like Giannis to touch on in a second. And then we'd dive into the session to the strength session and yeah, it was kind of, and then some days we do more of a outside. Lots of carries and things. Yeah. camp. Yeah. Like a boot camp. Exactly. Yeah. Just a whole variation. And then my diet as well. So during the training period, I had to make sure I was eating a lot of food, which I struggled with, to be honest. I just felt like I was eating all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew that I needed it. How, how much muscle did you put on, do you remember? Eight or nine kilos. Yeah. yeah. Which is a lot. <laughs> yeah, in that time frame. Some days I couldn't walk up the stairs. My legs were just... <laughs> I, I was living in an apartment where there was stairs and I'd stand at the bottom of the stairs like it's because we did do you remember you did the 12 minutes of split squats straight with like different like 20 25 kilos and you just kept going and going and then the next minute and the next minute it was relentless <laughs> the stuff I made you do that was that no one you could walk I loved it though I was addicted to the burn <laughs> yeah. um so how much load can you put the body through in a short period of time is a very unique to the individual. Yeah, definitely is. Like, I think the main things that would, um, the main factors that would really play there would be your age, your training history um, is probably one of the biggest ones. Um, you know, if you've got a good base, then you know that you can push the body more so than if someone's just beginning. It also depends on how, like for beginners, then you have to look at like how good is their motor control, their coordination, their balance, their stability, their mobility. There's so many other factors. But if you have someone that has that, a good base in all of what I call the, the systems of stability, mobility, strength, endurance, and stamina, then you know that you've got someone that you can push a lot further and a lot harder um, and that their adaptations will be um, quite moderate to advanced. Um, when you get to the advanced athlete, then any moderate, any adaptations there are always going to be slower just because they're really at the peak of their threshold. So to make, you know, for the advanced lifters out there, you know, they might, it might take them three months just to go from 200 kilos to 205 kilos, you know, whereas for a beginner, they might go from five kilos to 20 kilos. So that, you know, there's a much bigger difference there. Um, in, a, in, a, in a couple of weeks just because of the neuromuscular adaptations that they're, they're making without even making any muscle mass or anything like that. So, yeah, it really depends on the training history of the person. And then the age is just determinant on a lot more to do with recovery and how much load they, they can manage. You know, as, as you get older, 
you're peaking in your sort of 20s to 30s in, in that. And you can see that with most athletes out there. And then after that, you start to slow down in your recovery phase. And um, it just takes you a little bit longer to recover from a, from a strength session. And so you have to be a little bit smarter there and just make sure that recovery is intense. And then also what, what else, like you said, you had nothing else going on in your life. So then what else is going on in your life? Because the stress on the nervous system is... Uh, it's irrelevant of whatever the stimulus or input is, whether it's emotional, physical, physical, mental, uh, environmental, um, it all accumulates. So the fact that we were able to maintain a low stress environment and other things going on in your life meant that your um, body was better um, prepared to adapt and recover quicker because your, your overall compounding stress was lower so there's some other variables there that would have really affected the load but it's always it's always an individual basis there yeah awesome and then how can we test our movement capacity so posture stability mobility is that something that we have to do with a trainer or professional or are there some simple things that we can kind of figure out on our own Oh, that's, that's a good question. Look, in, in Australia, see, I've, I've been trained in the functional movement screen, um, which a lot of, it's not part of the personal training curriculum here. We, we do a cert three and four, but they don't do anything on, on the functional movement screen itself. I know physical therapists in, a, in America, uh, exercise physiologists here, um, some physios maybe um, may have done the training, but that's something that I've done. And I find it very useful as a screen. So there's like seven different key um, movement um, movements that a person has to conduct and from that they get a grading of zero one two or three on their ability and that's assessing their stability and mobility so it can be anything from like an overhead squat to like an inline lunge to a single leg stance hurdle step um, to your shoulder mobility so um, I think it should be something that all PTs should have as part of the as the curriculum um, just to give them a good understanding of of how it's, it's quite basic of how uh, you can assess someone's mobility and stability because without it, then you're, you're kind of guessing straight from the start and um, you miss out on little things like what's their ankle mobility like, what's their pelvic stability like, um, what's their shoulder um, mobility and stability like. And, and so those things really give you a better understanding of the foundations of, of that person's body. Um, and without understanding that, then if you put load and mass and weight onto an unstable human, it's much like putting it onto, you know, building a building on sand. It, it could collapse, you could get injuries and things like that. So um, definitely working towards when you find those dysfunctions, irregularities, asymmetries, then you have to put in a lot of work to, to remove those or reduce them before you can really start to uh, build the strength. But it's always worth it. So I, I think in terms of posture and stuff, like you can do your own postural testing in terms of standing up against the wall with your back and having your heels, bum, shoulders and head touch. And that will tell you, if you find that really hard, well, most people it, it is because we're so rounded in our shoulders and our head forward, head tilt and things like that. Um, but that's sort of like how we're meant to be standing up tall, you know, um, and that's quite easy to do. Um, in terms of everything else, um, it's generally should be assessed by someone that's got the capabilities. You can't really assess it too much. You can probably do a squat and you'll see that your knees might wobble and things like that. And, and that's quite obvious in people that didn't grow up playing a lot of sports and had poor kinesthetic learning. Um, there's, a, there's a neuromuscular element there where the brain development <clears throat> is so correlated to, to human movement that people that haven't played and and crawled and jumped and climbed 
their just their, their human movement and then their capacity to move it just looks off they're they're a lot more shaky their balance isn't as good they don't have that muscle development um, which isn't even doesn't even have to be a lot but just enough there to sustain good quality movement so and i see that regularly in people that come in to see me for the first time that haven't done any or much um sport growing up and they've been very studious maybe and they've done a lot of sitting and they're very intellectually smart but kinesthetically they're they're very lacking and unfortunately that is really required in the first 10 years of our life to set us up for the rest of our life because as adults once you become 20 and you don't have that background it just takes you just watch the learning takes so much longer in, in, in kinesthetically um they have to on repeat it's just like learning a language or learning to pick, play the piano when you're 20 as opposed to when you're eight massive difference yeah and uh, example I have of that is I recently started playing soccer again and I used to play soccer when I was younger. So it's been about a decade since I played soccer. And it, even though I've had a history of playing that sport, it took me about four or five soccer games to feel like, all right, my body understands this. Like my body was just, I was sore everywhere. And I'm someone that trains a lot. Like I run, yeah. I do circuit training, I strength train, I surf but just the difference in all of those moving in all different ways and just that starting and stopping of that sport. So I can't imagine what it would be like for someone that's never done something like that or it's never moved their body in that particular way. The adaptions that would be very hard, um, the adaptions that would have to occur and then also what the body would have to go through to try and change and adapt. Yeah, and and you'll see it. Probably often people can get injured in the first game or they just don't do very well. So then they're not really motivated to go back and try again, um, which is unfortunate because then you get into that vicious cycle where I gave that a go. It wasn't very good. So I'm not going to go do it anymore. And then, well, what do I do next? And so uh, unfortunately that doesn't breed, you know, any learning experience there at all. Cause it, the mm-hmm. first time seemed like a little bit of a, so I, I guess that's like, even when you go back to the gym after a long layoff, you always just got to, I just go in there. If I've had a time off training, I'll just walk in and I'll just go, I probably won't really feel like it because I haven't been in there for a while. And then I just sort of do something and then I'll do something else. And then when I feel bored, I just leave. And that was just enough. Like I didn't, I, there's never any expectation upon myself. And I think that's the same, like whether you pick up soccer or any other sport or when new people come and join my PT or my group classes and they're like saying sorry before they've even started. And I said, like, man, I've got no expectation of you whatsoever. Everyone's different. You just, do you, I'll watch how you go and I'll, I'll set you on your path. But that, that, there's no expectation, but people do put expectations on themselves. And unfortunately that can then uh, hold motivation back and hold your drive to, to just keep going and that consistency, which is more important than, than what you're actually doing in that class, you know? Yeah. And I want to share a little mindset perspective tip on that. Mm. So it is all about your mindset and your perspective because personally, I like being bad at things Mm. because then I have an opportunity to get better and I love getting better at things because it's a challenge and challenges help me to grow. Mm. So if you can start to be conscious of those thought patterns and start to rewire them in simple ways or even start with like, okay, I'm not good at this now, but where do I want to go and change that mindset into a growth mindset Mm. and then you're more excited by the journey. And then, you know, you've got something to work towards and it does then feed your motivation because you're like, yes, I'm getting better. Even me with soccer, I hadn't played in a decade. My first game, I was pretty crap. Like 
But now I go into my garage and I kick the soccer ball against the wall three times a week. The first time I yeah. did it, the soccer ball was flying out the back, the, the backside <laughs> often. And now I can kick it for 30 minutes straight without losing one ball out the back. And I was like, yes, like this is yeah, awesome. Wow. This is the journey. This is the process. Yeah. And if I had just played that one game and gone, oh, no, I'm not that good. I don't want to do it anymore. But the fact that I've strengthened that part of myself that wants to grow, wants to learn, I see mm. things that I'm not good at as a challenge and I love yeah. challenges. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, I love that too. I, and I think it takes people that, uh, you know, I, I think that in itself takes some training sometimes for people to have that perspective because not everyone does, obviously. And with my nieces, I watch them and one of them's a great athlete, but when things get a little bit hard, she, she drops her head and she kind of gets down on herself and it's right now we're working on, well, how can we change her perspective as a 10-year-old to mm. say, you know, like if you drop a game in tennis, hey, there's still more game to be played and, uh, and, and, and how can you change your perspective to sort of go, well, you know what, let's just see how we go in the very next point, you know, and just to chunk it down a little bit and mm. not let yourself get so down on yourself because we can't always expect ourselves to be brilliant at everything. You know, no one's perfect. We're just always about learning and, and, and getting better. Exactly. And it's not really about changing that perspective straight away, but it's about starting to question where your perspective is at, starting to Mm. be aware of those thoughts or of those Mm. roadblocks. And then once you're aware of them, it could take a period of time before you actually are ready to change them. But that's the process in itself. And Mm. once we can become aware of those thoughts, all those blocks that we have on ourselves, then it's just we can start to strengthen the part of us that wants to grow and improve, that has our own back, that has care and love for ourselves. And then that yeah. can then lead to the change. So, Yeah, 100%. I often say, like I wrote once, that often it's not the weight in our hands that holds the most resistance, but the weight that we hold in our head. And, um, you know, like part of it, like when you use the word strength in the mind, you know, like part of our strength training, even with you when you are doing your holding the 20 kilo plate above your head for three minutes, you know, like that takes physical strength, but it takes mental strength as well, you know, and, and strength training isn't just physical, but, but mental too. Yeah, for sure. And that's why I run because it helps me to train my mindset to the point that then that flows over into all aspects of my life, into my creativity, into my mindset with my work And so, yeah, it's not just like you do something in one pillar of your life and it doesn't affect the others. It's, it's, it's infinite, you know, it's Mm. a circle. So you can start in the gym and you can start strengthening your mindset in the gym while you're strengthening your body. I guarantee that that will then spill over into other parts of your life. 100%. So before we go any further, I just would, was wondering if you can define the difference between strength training and conditioning. Sure. Um, Strength training is more about your musculoskeletal system, so your your bones and your and your muscles and and the adaptations that we can make to make you stronger as an individual. Your bones stronger, your connective tissue stronger, and your muscles stronger. And we do that by adding load, uh, or we do that by doing things like uh, jumping or running that actually shock the body. Um, and so the bones are getting stronger, the connective tissue is getting stronger and the muscles are getting stronger. So that's going to build your strength. And that's where the weight training comes into it. And then your conditioning is more based on, I guess, the cellular um, and chemical uh, influence 
within that localized area um, or can be global as well. But what I mean by localized area, it's like that kind of burn you feel in, in your legs where you might be, <clears throat> might be producing a lot of lactate because you're in a high intensity interval training and your muscles are producing more lactate because they're using more glucose. And it's like your kind of your muscles are then developing their adaptative response to the energy system that's working, the byproduct or the waste product that's, that occurs from the use of oxygen and fuel in terms of carbon dioxide, lactate, and hydrogen. And then it's like the more you can tolerate um, the waste product and then flush it, and then the better you can use the, the fuel as an energy source, um, then your conditioning is going to improve as a whole. And I guess where you get then the endurance aspect is then it's, it's probably breaking up the what energy system are you using? Are you, and it's, that's more the aerobic where you're using oxygen and primarily fat um, as fuel sources, as opposed to say more high intensive or interval training, where you're using oxygen and glucose, or purely just glucose or, or phosphocreatine in very localized stores. Yeah, yeah. And when I do my long runs, I actually do fat for fuel, so I don't. Then I don't have to take as much stuff with me on my run, and I'll just because I know I'm keeping my heart rate under a certain threshold and then I'll fuel myself with fats and low carbohydrate foods and that really helps me in that longer endurance training but then if I'm doing something high intensity I've got to make sure I've got my carbo I'm eating my carbohydrates yeah yeah I might just go into that quickly about the energy systems there so what Isabel's talking about there is being in what we call the zone two um, sort of threshold of 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 training which is your predominantly fat burning and that for most people, that's in the general population, probably around 125 to 145 beats per minute. If you do wear a, 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 like a Garmin or some sort of watch that tells you your heart rate um, and the, the long duration and, the, and staying in that sort of in, that, that threshold is, uh, is critical there for developing your mitochondria, which is the energy factory of the cell. And you're making bigger mitochondria and you're making more of them. And that's why your fitness improves because these mitochondria are growing larger and in size and 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 that fat burning happens in that heart rate you're always, you can still be burning fat in a higher heart rate as well but what's happening is that it's too slow a process and so the body has to go to glucose which is more localized in the muscle tissue itself to whether you've picked up the speed a little bit to then find enough energy uh, quick enough to produce that speed and that's why when you run out of glucose because we only have about 500 grams in the um in the body then you hit a wall and you start to really slow down and and you and you feel like if you've ever done a triathlete a triathlon or a marathon or something like that and you glucose depletes because you haven't been topping up as you run then you just you slow right down because your body's only relying on fuel because there is no glucose left and, it, and uh so yeah that zone two cardio is something that i i get a lot of my clients to do and um and especially for those that are overweight that's even harder to achieve because their heart rate goes up pretty quickly, even with a slow jog, which is what I, I, I try and get most people to do is a slow jog. That's how they know they're in zone two, comfortable, they can talk, they can probably do it nasal breathing only. But when you're carrying a lot of weight, well, you're already heavier. And that's where the walking kind of side of things can be beneficial for those people. But for most people, walking wouldn't be beneficial because they're, just, they're not carrying that extra weight. So their heart rate would be too low to go into that sort of zone. Yeah, awesome. And then when it comes to supplementation for the different energy systems, 
Mm. What I was taking creatine during my SAS training. So creatine mm. can be used as a muscle energy fuel. Is that correct? Yeah. So phosphocreatine is something that is stored in the muscle tissue itself. Um, it's very much uh, a, a quick energy source. So if you think of a hundred meter sprinter, um, they'll be using their phosphocreatine stores for for that ten second interval. Um, it is a very short lifespan. Um, it is about 10 to 15 seconds and then we go into the glucose and then we go into the, the fats when they get to the longer duration. Um, the phosphocreatine for you was all about, because we're doing strength work, we wanted to replenish and top up those creatine stores, which can just help, A, it helps store a little bit more water, which will be beneficial to your recovery. And then and it also just helps with um, getting just an extra rep or two out um, because you've got those phos you've got that creatine uh, that's been ingested, being absorbed into the into the blood and then being produced into the muscle. So if you you can just find you can do do a couple of extra reps and just get a little bit more out of your training. And earlier you touched on the fact that you're a trainer for IMG. Anyone that doesn't know what IMG is, it is a big modeling agency worldwide. And can you just explain the differences when strength training women or models compared to other individuals? Uh, yeah. So I guess with the, the girls that come in, um, you know, my mum was a model. So I've been in the industry all my life and grown up with it. So I, I know what they expect and, and the professionalism there. And it somehow just all came together. That was sort of some of my clientele come into that industry. But those girls come in and they've got they've got expectations that they're uh, agents that I guess placing upon them into into their their figures um, and it's a big part of their job and so they want to they want to look lean and 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 strong and toned um, but they they have this sort of they don't want to be getting bulky or um, putting on excess mass through their strength training um, and whereas say like a, you might get a guy that comes in and he wants to bulk up and hypertrophy and build muscle and build size and all these sorts of things. So um, for these girls, it's more about making them strong, but only to the point that they need to be strong enough. Like, and, and what does that mean? Well, just strong enough for life, really. And then they're, you know, we don't have to overload their, their back and make them lift super heavy because it's just not necessary. They don't need to be that strong. We're not looking at, oh, what can you, what, what's your maximum deadlift? Like that's not a part of the goal there. So, um, you know, we want them to be strong and stable and able so that they, when they have to do their, their shows or their photo shoots where they might be put into positions or require some athleticism or that's what we kind of work on. And we, we still do a lot of strength training with these girls and, um, and that just helps with their, their, their tone and the definition of their bodies, um, helps with um, their fat mass. It, you know, we, we, we also put in some high-intensity conditioning in every session for the last sort of 10 to 15 minute, minutes, um, and that's more for their cardiovascular health, their mental health, their, um, their conditioning, um, and not so much like people I think are a little bit, think that strength training and strength and conditioning training is gonna have huge repercussions on weight loss. It, it may have a little, but there's, there's other factors there that, that play the key role into, in, into their fat mass, which is more lifestyle and nutrition based. And stress too. Stress as well. Stress is a big one, yeah. <laughs> stress is a killer. Yeah. Some other benefits of muscle I just want to share is it can help manage blood sugar. 
It can increase your metabolic rate and support your joints and it can increase your bone mineral density. Yeah, look, with each of those, blood sugar is a big one. Um, When we ingest glucose, in order for the cell to uptake that glucose, we need insulin. And the the issue there is that, say, with diabetics or pre-diabetes people, their insulin production is really poor. Um, But what they've found is that exercise is a non-insulin pathway of uptaking glucose. So what that means is that you can uptake glucose into the cell as an energy form without the use of insulin. And that's, that's, that's pretty big. What that means is like in the evening when you have dinner and your insulin levels are low, but you've ingested carbs, for instance, if the carbs isn't being absorbed by the cell because there's no insulin, it's going to go to the liver and be converted to fat. So going for a 20 to 30 minute walk after dinner um, proves to be advantageous in uptaking some of that glucose and promoting digestion and gut motility and that glucose uptake so that we don't have high blood glucose levels, which can be you know, disastrous for later in life with our metabolic health and cardiovascular disease, and also prevents you from converting as much glucose to fat from, from the high consumption of carbs or just it, a lot of us eat larger dinners than probably we should. So that 20 to 30 minute walk can just help with um, that glucose uptake and really help with putting on fat from the fact that you're eating dinner, whether late or too much at, at nighttime. Um, in terms of the, the bone density, yeah, for, for women especially, we know that they're, they're more susceptible to osteoporosis post-menopause. So um, having good bone density, which can be built through things like strength training, running, skipping, anything that has shock and um, impact upon the body, jumping, um, not so much swimming or cycling, um, then we know that we're building our bone density at a younger age and that's going to set us up for later on in life for the women especially. But also like if we do develop cancer or something, a lot of the therapies now, they impact your bone density greatly. And so if you don't have that good base there, then you know, and you have these therapies that are going to really target the bone density, um, it just means that when you know, life gets tough and you might get cancer or something, that you're in a better position to combat not only the cancer, but also the therapies involved. Yeah. And something else I want to share is I broke, when I broke my hip last year, I got my bone density tested and I lost my cycle for five years when I was about 18. So my menstrual cycle, and that can have a big impact on your bone mineral density. And so having an eating disorder and losing my cycle and then breaking my hip, they thought that I might have low bone density but my bone density was fine and that's quite a miracle yeah. for someone that lost their cycle for five years mm-hmm. and I honestly think it's just because of the way that I've the my nutrition and then also the strength training that I've done yeah and the fact that you probably get a lot of sunlight as well which helps with the vitamin d which has a big impact on your bone density as well probably because of where you live and how you grew up and mm-hmm. absolutely so is there um if you could just share some information on different rep ranges for different goals. So if someone's starting out, they're going to the gym, training in the gym, and they have a little program, but they're not really sure what kind of rep range they should be in. Is there any particular ranges you could share with listeners? Yeah, absolutely. I think if you're a beginner um, or you've just going getting back into the gym after a t- some time off, 
I think the most important thing there is to understand that what you're going to be doing first is practicing a movement. And the more you practice that movement, the better you're going to get it. And that's a, that's a, a neuromuscular strengthening um, of the motor control that we have. So what you want to do, if you say you're doing a squat, you, you, you choose something of a, of a lighter weight, um, quite easy, but you do a high repetition. Why? It's because you're, you're just trying to repeat over and over again the squat movement. So you've got the foundations and you're, you're doing it well. Um, and obviously, just like playing the piano, the more times you play and practice, the better you're going to get at it. So you just think of those rep ranges as practicing first. And that's building the, the connection between your brain and your muscles first, because that's what needs to strengthen first is that I call it the Wi-Fi system of the human body is your, is your nervous system. So it's like at first, when you start doing something like a squat, you may have a, like a, a dial-up internet connection. You're all shaky and wobbly and you just that, that communication is not very strong. But as you practice and practice, your, your Wi-Fi, your nervous system starts to develop into that 3G, 4G, 5G, and it's a lot stronger. So now once you've got that good brain to body and muscle connectivity there uh, via the nervous system, then you can start to increase the weight and drop the, drop the reps down. Um, so I would say for most people, like a, a three set by 15 rep range um, is, is, is what most beginners should be doing um, to, to practice the movement, to get enough intensity out of there, to not overload their body with too much weight, but just remember that they're building the nervous system in the first sort of six to eight weeks. And then from there, then we'd look at, well, what is your goal? Is it to primarily strength? Are we building a base of strength? Then, and generally that's where we would go before we start getting into the hypertrophy or, or the power or the sports specificity there. So yeah. yeah, three by 15, I think is a really good starting point. Yeah. most people how much can you increase your load so most people can basically start off on like 10 kilos and they can probably go to 12.5 and to 15 but then like i said that if you get to the elite level you're making one percent incremental if that strength gains because you're right near the peak of your threshold so it really depends on your your training age so it's a really tricky one especially when you're trying to build a program and and give people a program with online or something that you haven't trained them you don't know their base you don't know how well they move it's like you can only guess and it's really up to the individual to kind of feel that um and what i what i would usually say is that if you can do three sets of 15 reps um then you can do that quite comfortably mm. Uh, and then you can probably express like go up to the next. So if it's like a 10 kilo squat for three by 15, well, then I'm comfortable with you doing a, a three by 12 to 15 on a 12.5. And if you can do three by 15 at 12.5, then I'm comfortable with you moving up again. And that's kind of for the beginner. That's how I would kind of look at it. Yeah. But they, they'd have time in between that. Like, so they do their three by 15, make sure they're comfortable. Then the next session they'd come back. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, and that just says that, yeah, I ticked that box and now I can move on. But if, if say, for instance, in their next session, they did three by 12, well, I would expect them to be able to hit the three by 15 first in the, in the next session from there before they then jumped up the weight. Um, and I think that's a pretty nice way to look at it. So, and that's for like a, a big, that's like a squat, like a compound movement. If it's a, if it's a bicep curl, well, maybe the increment is half a kilo to a kilo difference, you know, because it's a smaller muscle group. Good advice. Thank you. And what is the recovery time for exercise from cardio strength to hit? 
Uh, again, de it depends on the individual and the training age and the age of, um, and then the stress that we spoke about. But on general, we're looking for like cardiovascular, like that zone two running that we we're talking about, uh, 12 to 24 hours. Um, so that sort of steady state, uh, low stress sort of cardio. Um, your high intensity interval training is probably more around 24 to 48 hours. Um, and this is kind of why I have a bit of an issue with people that do too much high intensity training where it's, you know, they might do, I see some people, they do a night class and then they go and do the next morning and then they're back again the morning after that. And it's all just high intensity, high intensity, high intensity. And it's like compounding chronic stress that's developing over a few weeks to months. And then they just crash and burn and, and uh, get injured or get sick. Um, so people need to realize high intensity training is very, very stressful on the body. I call it game day. You know, it's like an athlete will have game day once a week. During the week, they're doing skill work they're doing recovery work they're doing a bit of strength work um but they only play game day once because if they played game day every day they wouldn't be playing so well and they'd be injured a lot so a week for athletes is a lot between their game days i think for most people their hit sessions should be at least two days um and probably only one to two a week because i think they should be concentrating more on the, the zone two and the strength and then the and the strength training um anywhere from say 24 to 72 hours, um, depending on, again, how heavy and how much, to, to, to what level were you exhausting the, the tissue, to what level were you straining it and stressing it. Um, and then I think with strength training, though, you can get around a little bit because you might be able to do legs on one day and then go back and do, you know, the upper body the next day. Um, but the, the, the fatigue of the nervous system still matters. So even though you're using different muscles, you do have to account for, well, has the battery recharged? If not, you're going to be losing gains. And so again, I'd probably say like three days a week for strength training um, as a minimum and, uh, you know, with a day off in between where you do your zone two or something and on the weekend do your hit session as your, as your competitive game day. Wonderful. I've actually got game day this uh, Saturday. I'm running a half marathon. Woo! Are you? So pumped. Yeah, well, wow. it was one of my biggest goals. I was like, broken hip to half marathon. I'm doing it. Awesome. Well, good luck for that. <laughs> I'm pretty excited. And I just have one other question mm -hmm. before we wrap up, and that is, should you stretch before a workout or should you activate? Because I've recently had this come up for me again. Mm. Because I've torn my quad muscle. Oh, is it? You just don't want to know. <laughs> I don't want to know. <laughs> if you have an injury or you don't have an injury, should you be um, activating and strengthening the muscle before you train or should you stretch it? Uh, well, what does my warm up look like? I would get people to do five minutes or so of something that increases the body temperature something that increases the viscosity of the fluids and the fluidity of our circulatory system um, and just starts to move energy through our body. Um, so that might be a slow jog, a bit of skipping, something like that, or on a, on a bike or an air bike or something. And then we look at, let's do a little bit of mobility work, uh, which does sort of include the stretch, but with the stretch, it, it should only be very short, like 10 to 30 seconds, definitely a maximum of 30 seconds. Um, pre-workout just because like for most individuals it, it, it power deficiencies and and leaks aren't going to be that much of an issue because we probably won't be doing that kind of work but for athletes yeah you definitely don't want to be doing long stretches 
uh, longer than 30 seconds because they can have these power leaks that come from that. Um, mm. So, yeah, there's a bit of mobility. I call it lubricating the joints, really. Um, it, and it's just um, there's a bit of stretching involved there. Um, and then and that I, I guess you can also see where you're tight and where you're feeling it a little bit sore and where you may need to do the work. But then we definitely focus more on the activations where we use bands um and what we're focusing on there is stability so you do have to work the mobility part but the stability part's super important because your your pillar what what i call the pillar is your glutes your core and your shoulders um they're the most mobile joints of the human body and you need to have them up and ready to go before you do your strength work or your run because if you if they're not ready then you're not going to be very efficient and you're going to be more susceptible to injury so Activating your glutes, your core, and your shoulders are always should be done, I believe, um, with the use of bands. And then I also target the hamstrings and the hip flexors because of lifestyle. A lot of people have tight hamstrings and hip flexors, and they're under the, the idea that because it's tight, they need to stretch those muscles. Um, but the reason they're tight is actually because those muscles are weak. And so what they need to do is activate and strengthen the hamstrings and the hip flexors um, to make them stronger so that the nervous system, which is creating the tightness in the connective tissue that runs through it, takes off that handbrake of tightness and allows the body a bit more um, range of mobility because it trusts that the muscles are now strong enough to support that range of mobility. Um, and I think that's where people often um, are a bit confused about the stretch and strengthen principle there on tight hamstrings and hip flexors. Um, but in general, it's usually a strengthening. So we'll always prime the hammies and the, the hip flexors. And most people die at doing them, especially the office workers and stuff. They're just like in agony there because they, <laughs> it's a neglected couple of neglected muscle groups, but also ones that we sit on and, and keep tight because of our sitting posture. Um, and then we'll just prime the nervous system with some really fast sort of like movements or explosive movements that just energize your body and your nervous system so that you're, you feel pumped. So that might just be like five ball slams, five squat jumps, um, just things like that, running on the spot for 10 seconds. Skipping. Yeah, stuff that just really amps you up for that, for that workout and you're ready to go. Yeah, I did a little experiment with the question I just asked, so I just wanted to make sure that my experiment <laughs> may have been correct. <laughs> so I've got an injured leg. Yeah. And I still play soccer. Because mm, okay. I'm obsessed. I love it. I can't believe I've gone the last decade without playing a competitive sport. So if anyone out there is feeling like they're missing something in their life, I would totally recommend you sign up to a competitive sport because it has changed the game for me I am totally obsessed I love every second of it so I'm just I'm maintaining right now I'm just like getting the legs getting me through because I don't want to not play soccer this season but so I did stretch a lot before the last two or three games and I had a lot of pain like Mm. I felt like my muscle was ripping off my leg when I was playing soccer Mm. last night I did the opposite no stretching no lengthening of that part of my leg, but just uh, holding a wall squat, mm. doing single leg lunges, doing all my glute activation stuff, which I always do my glute activation stuff anyway. But mm. I was, what I stopped last night was I stopped stretching the actual yeah. quad where the injury was. And yeah. I played and it was all good. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be stretching it. Stretching an injury is definitely not part of the rehab protocol. <laughs> <laughs> Neither is playing soccer, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, no, neither is playing. It doesn't surprise me that you are. <laughs> uh, okay, so before we finish up, I was just wondering if you've got three of your favourite books that you can re- recommend for listeners to check out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I read a lot, so I, I, have, uh, I have many books that, I love, but in terms of what we've been talking about today, I, I think the three I would recommend, um, one's called Burn. It's by Herman Ponser, and it's about the misunderstood science of metabolism. It's all about energy systems and how we use fuel. Um, it also talks a little bit about uh, our evolution with, with food and our circadian rhythms. It's a, it's a, it'll blow your mind, some of the work in there. And there, uh, Herman Ponser is an anthropologist. Then there's the circadian, circadian Code by Dr. Sachin Panda. And that's also a really brilliant book to tell you. Uh, it teaches you about understanding how the body, um, the body clock works, but also how we have these clock genes within every cell and how sunlight and food really um, are the main drivers of our body clocks. Um, that's a brilliant book. And then one well, that's a bit off topic, but that blew my mind when I read it. it was called The Molecule of More um, by Daniel Lieberman. And that's all about dopamine. And that's, it's just an insane <laughs> book to learn about human behavior. Um, yeah. It talks about motivation, pain avoidance, and, and, it, and it looks at that in relationships or in politics or in uh, addictions. And it, it's just, it, I was just reading it. I couldn't put it down when I was on a little retreat for a week and just read that book in like a day it was just brilliant i find dopamine so interesting so interesting the more i've learned more i've learned about it i'm like well there i go i'm yeah. looking for a dopamine hit yeah <laughs> i'm like there she goes again all right stay on track there's actually an epic song called dopamine too so Is guys that? you should check it out <laughs> i'll check it out yeah, it's so good. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for sharing your all your knowledge. Yeah, thanks, Izzy. I will say I am actually in the production stage of a, a really intelligent um, coaching platform, um, which is all about fundamental strength training. And and that should be out in the next couple of months. So it's going to have a little neuroscience ebook there on lifestyle. It's going to have, you know, if you've never done strength training before, it will just have some really good quality coaching on there. So um, keep an eye out for that too. Magic one-stop shop, and I will include the links to Giannis's social media and website in the show notes. So if you want to get in touch with him, or you have any other questions, or you want to see some of the epic training that he does with with a community, then you can find his links in the show notes. So thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Izzy. Pleasure. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate you so much for being a part of this journey. If this podcast resonates with you, I would love your support. So please share, subscribe, or leave a five-star review. Don't forget, you can find all the detail and links for this episode in the show notes. You can connect with me via Instagram at Isabel Cornish or via my website, isabelcornish.life. For more uplifting content, I highly recommend checking out my book, The Why, Healthy Habits for an Epic Life. Thanks for listening. And remember... Stay magic.